reviewing those sermon notes this morning and the crash which the iPad had was not a trivial crash. It was a big deal. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, makes one a bit nervous. Now I have a second iPad over there. <laughs> All right. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Invitations to dine with another can be exciting and they can be significant. For shared intimacy around the table is the stuff which family and close friendships are oftentimes profoundly nurtured by. And the occasional exceptional joys of culinary delight can be out of this world gratifying, and I must say, not so occasional at the Dixon household. But the pleasures of the palate can be some of the most intense of human sensual delights. So, as we observe this morning in the convergence of the Old Testament lesson with Lady Wisdom's invitation to dine, and John 6 with the Lord's invitation to come feed on him, the bread of life, we can't help but have the issue of our various experiences of dining or feasting in mind. And then, having been sensitized to this overarching theme of eating or dining by those two principal texts, we're quite naturally made alert to hear from our psalm the following language which we just heard, which we just spoke. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow in the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. The Creator God, who brought forth this spinning globe of life we call earth, provides for His creation rain for the plants of His world and food for its living creatures. He is thus both the source and the sustainer of life, all sorts of life. So, as we ponder these texts this morning, we would do well to distinguish three different aspects of our lives and three different provisions which the Almighty provides for us. First, there is the material sustenance of the creatures of God's world which they, which we, must eat or die. Certainly, we are part of this animal creation and cannot long live without food. You might remember that Lewis's screw tape told Wormwood something quite close to the truth when he said this in letter 8. I think it's one of the best letters in the whole collection. Screwtape says, humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. As those who are in our natures, both animal and spirit, it has never been to our advantage or has it ever in any way furthered our spiritual natures to deny or downplay the animal aspects of our person, our materiality. We have material bodies and those material bodies require material sustenance and there's simply no point in pretending otherwise. Now, many of you, at my recommendation this year, during Lent, read the work of Athanasius called The Life of Antony. Some of you? I think a bunch of you did, actually. His experiences as a monk in the wilderness doing battle with the demonic realm are in many ways amazing and inspiring. And that's what I had in mind when I made the recommendation. I don't regret commending it to you. But I will say this. I was not at all pleased in this year's reading of that work by the monk's bizarre attitudes toward eating. You might have noticed he disdained food and found horror at the very thought of finding pleasure in food or enjoying it. And I tell you plainly this morning that Antony's maniacal aversion to all the pleasures of the table and the palate was not good, not healthy, or spiritually sound, but in fact 
pathological. We are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. And there is nothing spiritual about disdaining everything about our materiality. God made us this way. We can enjoy a good meal and thank God for it. As Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, God richly gives us all things. Why? For our enjoyment. It's possible to enjoy and enjoy intensely a delicious bowl of ice cream virtually as an act of worship, as we joyously thank our Heavenly Father from whom such pleasures, from whom such gifts come. God made us this way, and God gives us those pleasures for our enjoyment. We should receive, we should experience these gifts with joy and with gratitude. Now, the food by which the animal creation is enabled to survive is rightly called sustenance. Sustenance, by the very root meaning of the word, is that which is required to sustain something. Sustenance, sustain, to keep something going, to keep it from ending. Thus, one aspect of our feeding pertains to the temporary continuation of our mortal lives, lives which will not, indeed, cannot go on forever in this state. Even so, those mortal lives live within these mortal bodies, which one day must die, will surely be cut short, will be ended tragically and prematurely, if we do not have adequate food to sustain us. So sustenance is indispensable. But there's a huge difference between that which is provided as sustenance to maintain our biologically mortal lives and what Jesus is offering to us in John chapter 6. Jesus, in contrasting what he is offering with the food which he miraculously provided in the feeding of the 5,000, says this. Hear it carefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, that would have been the right reason, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And again, a few verses later in the same chapter, contrasting what he's offering with the manna that the Israelites had eaten in the wilderness, he says this, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So, from the very get-go, we are invited to distinguish between a material sustenance, which mortals must eat to avoid a physical death, and a food of an entirely different nature. And let us particularly consider this non-material or spiritual fare in terms of Lady Wisdom's invitation to dine, and then the Lord's astonishing bread of heaven discourse. So, in moving on to the reading from the Proverbs, from Wisdom's invitation, we see that there is that metaphorical food to which the self-admitted simpleton is invited to dine and partake of those skills of life by which he might experience a better life, a healthier life, a more satisfying life, than the fool who is inattentive to wisdom's correction. The Hebrew word for wisdom is the word hakma, which means skill. And you'll see that Hebrew word used in the Old Testament with reference to woodworking or uh, playing a musical instrument skillfully or any number of other things. But hakma meant generally as wisdom means skill in life or skill in living. And the presupposition of the entire wisdom tradition in the Old Testament is that the Creator God has fashioned His universe in such a manner that His fingerprints are simply all over it. And there is a moral structure built into the very fabric of our world, which structure creates a nexus between 
wise living and blessing, and foolish living and misery. To put it another way, there is a moral cause and effect in this moral universe created by a perfectly righteous God where certain good and appropriate behaviors generally, not always, but generally lead to blessing, and other sinful and inappropriate behaviors generally lead to misery. And these moral laws of our universe are perceptible to anyone at all paying attention to what theologians call general revelation. The invitation of Lady Wisdom is to come partake of her fine fare at her excellent feast and to set aside the stupidity of soul which blinds the simpleton from seeing the obvious and from distinguishing wisdom from folly or virtue from vice. Hear this again. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Now, it must be noted that the translation of the key statement of leave your simple ways and live is a bit controversial. Some take the noun in the plural as evocative or direct address. So the American Standard reads instead, leave off, ye simple ones, that's evocative, and live. But the vast majority of translations take the plural noun as the object of the verb and interpret it either as simple ways or as simple tons. So the point is either to forsake bad company or to forsake bad choices or habits. Perhaps my favorite commentator on the Proverbs, well, he is in fact my favorite commentator on the Proverbs, Derek Kidner, he says this, which I love, there's no need to emend fools to folly like the RSV or like the ESV, for the feast represents more than a new outlook, it is a changed pattern of life in new company, in new company. That's the way he regards that plural noun. Now, Professor Kidner's approach seems to make great sense in light of the clear juxtaposition of the invitation of Lady Wisdom at the beginning of Proverbs 9 compared to the invitation of Dame Folly at the end of the same chapter. And it's somewhat chilling to observe that Dame Folly extends an invitation to the simple to come dine with her, and the ultimate outcome of that feast is dining with the dead, or perhaps even the damned. Here's what she says, the end of the same chapter. Whoever's simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Wisdom invites the simple, the naive, the gullible, to come learn discernment in how to embrace life rightly and discreetly. And that embrace of the good of necessity requires repudiation of that which is not good, be it choices, be it habits, or associates. The simple in the palace of Lady Wisdom, in repenting and wishing for better in this life, must leave those stupid things behind. On the other hand, the simple who has yielded to the seductive entreaties of Dame Folly, in being hardened in his spiritual blindness and choosing wrongly to embrace the shame of bread eaten in secret at her invitation, is learning to associate comfortably with the dead and those who inhabit the depths of Sheol. Decisions truly have consequences, and sometimes those consequences lead to the grave or even beyond the grave. Some of the consequences of our decisions made in time are in fact beyond time or eternal. Yes, temporal decisions can have everlasting consequences. And then thirdly, we come at last to the astonishing language of John chapter 6. And we must recognize that this language of Jesus 
while perplexing to anyone and everyone who has ever confronted it, was also deeply troubling to those who originally heard it. The very next verse in the gospel beyond today's reading states this, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then just a few verses further down in the chapter, we read, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of those who had previously been following Jesus and traveling with him found his language of John 6 so disturbing, so repulsive, that they gave it up. They quit following him from this point. So how did they hear him such that they found his words so offensive and so intolerable? Well, they heard him literally to be using language of cannibalism, the language suggestive of literally eating another person's body and drinking his blood is repugnant to most sensitive consciences of whatever background and certainly shocking to the ears of his Jewish audience when heard literally. But why would Jewish people who esteem the Old Testament as their special treasure, their particular revelatory gift from God, a book just filled, just brimming with metaphor, simile, allegory, synecdoche, hyperbole, metonymy, virtually every type of figurative language, particularly in the Psalms, why would such a people find it so difficult to hear Jesus rightly here, which is to say, figuratively? I think the final verse at the end of the feeding of the 5,000 incident is suggestive on this point. In John 6, verse 15, we read this. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Having had their material needs for sustenance so lavishly, and supernaturally provided by Jesus, they simply couldn't quit obsessing on the possibilities of a new economic order in which the challenges of material survival in this world would be set aside by this bread machine from heaven, as they perceived him. Think of the economic and social implications of following someone who could feed everyone every day with the simple outpouring of his creative power. They were so struck by the possibilities that that was all they could think about. This was to them the possibility of the curse being lifted, at least with respect to the providing of material life's sustenance. God's words to Adam had been hard words, and life under the reality of those words had proved very hard. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For your dust and to dust you shall return, God said truly. So enamored were those who had eaten the fish and bread so miraculously provided by Jesus with their full bellies that they were unable to consider the much greater provision which the Lord was speaking about and offering. Sometimes to be sated with material satisfactions can almost dull our spiritual senses to our deeper and our much more profound needs. Now, Lest we seem to be too hard on the Jews here and their wrong-headed, literalistic hearing of Jesus' words, let me tell you that I don't believe we do much better than they when we think of John 6 as a key text in our sacramental disputes with other Christians with other convictions about the meanings of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is not even remotely speaking to that question. How could he be? The Last Supper at which he will institute the Lord's Supper is a full year away. He has never used that language of institution at this point. He has never taken the sacramental meal of the Passover and infused it with explicitly Christian meaning. That will happen at the Passover the following year. And when he later does institute that glorious sacramental meal, 
He never suggests, even vaguely, that eating that sacramental meal would be somehow salvific. And yet in this discourse, he repeatedly states that this eating leads one to eternal life. Nothing resembling that claim was ever made about the Lord's Supper from any biblical author. No, Jesus does not directly have the Lord's Supper or its meanings in view in John chapter 6. We can extrapolate certain inferences which bear upon our understanding of the table, but that's really all. What he is doing is using boldly metaphorical language to talk about our receiving a new life, a life not bounded by time or the limitations of our mortality. He's talking about eternal life and where we might find it and how we might receive it. So in contrast to material sustenance by which our biological lives are extended somewhat, and in contrast to the banquet at wisdom's table, where the clueless are taught the difference between that which is good and wise versus that which is not good and foolish, an insight which enhances our lives, Jesus is talking about a different kind of life altogether. And this different kind of life, while offered to all humanity, it is only experienced by those who receive it rightly. He states this fact negatively, and he states it again positively. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the binary nature of this statement. There's an underlying yes or no. Only those who do this have this life, but for sure all those who do this certainly do have this eternal life. Once again, this is not about perpetuating or continuing a strictly mortal our biological life, nor is it about enhancing or improving or reordering our moral or ethical lives. This is about receiving a different kind of life altogether. To have it at all, one must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Now, I know what you're likely thinking. You're asking yourselves, and perhaps a bit loudly in your own heads, I don't hear you, but I know you're asking this, but what does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood if he's neither talking of cannibalism nor of the Lord's Supper. What does it mean, and why did he put it that way? And that's a great question. Hold it for just a bit, a few more minutes. <laughs> Before we address that, let us ask what we're told about the nature of this life which results from this eating. It's eternal. It's not corruptible or temporary. He said that repeatedly throughout the discourse, but he adds another bit of information about this new life in this next statement. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. The life which results from this eating that he is describing is by its very nature a union with Jesus, not unlike the union between the Father and the Son, which is to say, those who partake of this true food become so united with Jesus he in us and we in him, that our shared life becomes as inseparable as the life of the Son is shared with the life of the Father, who is the ultimate source of all life. He's talking about a spiritual union in which the divine life flows into us and lives within us and for all eternity. We become immersed in the very life of God. And in talking about this salvific eating and drinking, he's using metaphorical language to refer to saving faith in him and in his saving death. How do we know this? Consider this. In verse 54, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
But in verse 47 of this very same chapter, he just stated, whoever believes has eternal life. Now the two statements are exactly equivalent, except that whereas the one statement has, whoever feeds of my flesh and drinks my blood, the other has, whoever believes. That's important. As one commentator astutely observes, now things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. To eat his flesh and to drink his blood is to believe on him. Or another commentator notices with similar insight the striking commonality of verse 54 and verse 40 of the same chapter. So here in 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 40, a little bit earlier, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So another commentator says this, and I think this is insightful. Notice that here the result, having eternal life and being raised up at the last day, is produced by looking on the Son and believing in him. Compare John 6:54, which is in our text, where the same result is produced by eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. This suggests that the phrase in 6:54, eats my flesh and drinks my blood, is to be understood in terms of the phrase here, looks on the Son and believes in him. Now, I regard this as convincing double-barreled evidence that Jesus is using the metaphorical language of eating and drinking to refer to the literal reality of believing in him for eternal life. And that, of course, is a major and recurring theme of John's gospel. But this leaves yet one question needing some explanation. If indeed his literal intent is a reference to believing in Jesus for eternal life, why express such meanings with language of eating and drinking generally, and why in particular language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood? With respect to the appropriateness of language of eating and drinking, let me briefly make four suggestions. First, the entire bread of heaven discourse flows from the prior miracle of feeding the 5,000. And their response to that great miracle was so over-the-top wrong-headed that he feels the need to stick with that imagery and unpack it more deeply. A full belly does not a full heart necessarily demonstrate. Their almost animal-like desperation for an assured source of material sustenance has made them deaf, dumb, and blind to the central need of the human condition. Secondly, the setting of that miracle and this discourse is plainly stated at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 4 says this, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, we're not shown the explicit connections between the discourse and their experience or questions about the meanings of the Passover, but the mention of the fact makes it probable that the one pertains to the other. A commentator named Hoskins says this, The movement from the miracle to the discourse, from Moses to Jesus, and above all, from bread to flesh is almost unintelligible unless the reference in verse 4 to the Passover picks up chapter 1, 29 and 36. It anticipates chapter 19, 36 and governs the whole narrative. Now, is that an overstatement? Well, I'm not sure that it is. Another commentator, Edwin Bloom, who I actually had in seminary, he apparently agrees, and he put it this way in his commentary. The people were thinking in terms of blood, flesh, lambs, and unleavened bread. They longed for a new Moses who would deliver them from Roman bondage. So the context of the Passover makes a sustained presentation of the offer of salvation in metaphorical terms of eating and drinking really quite comprehensible. A lot of eating and drinking goes on in the Jewish Passover. Thirdly, if the life conferred in this saving faith in the person of Jesus draws a person into union with him, into a union much like the union between the Father and the Son, who share the same eternal and divine life, 
what feature of our common lives could better represent that union or that fusion of two realities into one than eating and drinking? As one commentator notes, the eating and the drinking has to do with shared life, mutual indwelling. In the physical realm, one of the most powerful examples of shared life is eating and drinking, the laying down of life by a plant or animal, and the interpenetration of life as molecules are transferred, thereby nourishing life. And then fourthly and lastly, the scriptures frequently, very frequently, use the literal realities of our hunger and our thirst as pointers beyond those conditions to our ultimate condition of urgently hungering or thirsting to know our Creator God. Here's just a sampling, Psalm 81:10. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Deuteronomy 8:3. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Psalm 63:1. O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Isaiah 55, 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Now, this is just a sampling. There are so many passages in the Bible about hungering or thirsting for God. This is just a representative sampling. But it's easy to see how that physically intense need for food or drink very naturally points to something even more pressing, much more profound, an urgent need to know and to be in intimate fellowship with our Creator. But then lastly, if we can make some sense of Jesus expressing his teaching about our receiving the gift of eternal life through faith in him in terms of eating and drinking, why in particular is it the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood? Although that's the disturbing aspect of the language, I don't believe this is hard to understand. The content of our saving faith in our saving Lord has two aspects. It is a faith directed like a laser toward him, no one, nowhere else. But it's a faith directed like a laser toward him with reference to what he would do in offering up himself as a substitutionary and propitiatory sacrifice. We cannot understand the content of saving faith if we should detach the person of Jesus from his redemptive work. Jesus as a prophet, as a moral guide, a wisdom teacher, a guru, a spirit person, or any other modern reconstruction of his person is not the Jesus who saves. The Jesus who saves is the Jesus who died and by that death paid for the sins of mankind. And what could better point toward that reality than language of his flesh and of his blood? So, in drawing to a close, let us bear in mind several key truths about our human lives. Just as we are complicated in our natures, amphibians, half animal and half spirit, so we are complicated in our needs. Our animal selves need sustenance to sustain our biological existences in this world. Without it, well, we quickly die. And yet we are not to feel that our animality in and of itself reflects a problem or brokenness. We were created as such by God. Of course, the entire creation underwent a terrible fall, which ruined everything. But we were created as animals and spirit before the fall. And as such, as part of God's material and animal creation, we must relate to him in dependence and gratitude 
for his gracious ongoing provision for us. The Creator loves and cares for his creation, of which we are indeed a part. But we are also moral and intellectual beings living in a world with a moral and intellectual structure. And our Creator God is also a revealing God who has placed certain structures, certain predictable regularities or moral laws within the world and made them perceptible for the wise to observe and embrace. There is a definite cause and effect relationship between living wisely, consistent with this moral structure, and typically experiencing blessings. Similarly, only a fool would not observe that certain twisted or vicious behaviors or attitudes in this world, at odds with the good purposes of his Creator, lead one into all sorts of pain and misery. Our invitation to dine with Lady Wisdom is an invitation to repent of moral stupidity and learn the ways of wisdom which the Hebrews called hakma. Skill in life, our wisdom, is observing those moral and ethical patterns which permeate every aspect of this world and attempting to conform our lives to them. But clearly, even the wise will fail, and perhaps even fail often. But they at least know that this God-given blessed structure of life is there, and that embracing its opposite, which is to say chaos, leads one to disaster and ruin. Our God is a revealing God who points the way toward life and warns about the alternative. And lastly, Jesus, in shockingly graphic language, tells us in John 6 about a type of dining which confers an entirely new life, an eternal life, God's life. He promises that those who partake of him in this way may be brought into the most intimate communion with him and with his heavenly Father. Let us then feast with and on God, who is the Creator, the Revealer, and the Redeemer. Let us enjoy the spread and cherish the mutual fellowship with one another and with the Trinity, which we experience. And let us learn hospitably to bring others, many others, to this saving feast. The table is laid, the sacrificial feast has been prepared, and the Lord awaits the entry of those truly hungry of soul, and he awaits us with loving anticipation. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Amen.